0: The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Every time I dread it every time. I think to myself, don't be that guy who leaves the mic on mute, and I did it. So, But now it's done. It's over. It'll never happen again. How's it going? My name's Evan. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm the creative lead here at the Grove Church. And uh, what that means is essentially... Um, you know, the stuff you see on screens, I, I, I oversee that. I help make it. Like the bumper video, with the music, I pick that out. It's a banger. So sometimes I dance to it. Um, it's just one of those things. And if you're online, uh, that means that I'm the person who presses buttons to make the online go up on the front. So there you go. You, you've never seen my face, but now you know that we're connected. So... There you go. Uh, anyways, today we are in a, uh, we're in a series called This is Church. And, and one of my great passage, passions is being able to teach the Bible. And it's always such an honor uh, when Pastor Nick and the staff invite me to be able to uh, speak or to be able to teach or be able to do any of those things. And, and the series we're in, the idea behind it is talking about the stories that make us church, talking about what makes us church. One of the first things that we talked about is the idea that the church isn't a building. The church is the people, right? So if if this building burned down tomorrow, um, I mean, that would be a bummer, but the Grove Church would not have lost a single member. The Grove Church would still be here. In the same way that the church is not, the global church is not a bunch of buildings scattered throughout the world, it's Christians. It's all Christians throughout the world. That is the church, and we all have unique stories, um, but we also have similar things. We have similar themes. We have ideas about what makes us the church, and that's what we're trying to talk about today. The idea behind the message is this, is this idea of the prodigals come home. And if you don't know what that means, that's totally fine, because I'll explain it here in a second. It's a little churchy. But that is the idea of the message. First, though, let's, let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for us being able to gather together, for us being able to learn more about you, to worship you the way that you deserve to be worshipped. And I pray that today as I speak that they wouldn't be my words if they would be your words, that there wouldn't be a hint of pride in my heart, and that all of our hearts would be open and ready to receive the truth that you would tell us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, this might be a silly question, but how many of you growing up, you remember having a nemesis or a rival or anyone like that? That could be just me that I'm thinking of. Here's the thing. Online, if you remember having a rival, let me know. Don't type their name though in the chat, because that would just be—I mean, that'd be mean. So we'll we'll keep it we'll keep it simple. Um, but there was a kid who came into my life, and I'm sure it's funny when you look back as an adult because I'm I'm sure that this kid was delightful. Um, we just didn't get along, and I'm sure today he's a well-adjusted human and he's con- a contributing member of society. But. Eight-year-old me was absolutely convinced that this kid had come into my life just to tear it all down. Like, we, just, we did not, we'd not see eye to eye. And I have this weird memory that sticks out in my head where I was sitting in the school cafeteria, and actually I went to school um, here at the church. So there used to be a Christian school that I operated out of. The cafeteria was the upstairs of what used to be a wing and now is a parking lot and will one day be the new auditorium. So I have a lot of history in that general vicinity of that, specifically that part of the church. But I was sitting up, I was eating lunch, and that kid had woken up and he had chosen violence that day, and he came, (laughs) and he just accosted me with language, language so foul that I won't repeat it. Actually, I will. He told me to shut up. Now, growing up, and that might not seem bad to you, but growing up, I, was, I had a list of words, and these words were what my parents called bad words. And if I, uttered, if I uttered any of these words in the presence of my father or mother, I would immediately be reminded of what soap tastes like. And on the list of these words, there's standard words, right? There's words that even today I try not to say. But there's other words that, you know, as adults it feels a little bit silly, um, but these would be words like, you know, shut up, couldn't say it, uh, stupid, don't say it, don't call other people that, like crap, that's a filthy word, don't say it, the, all of those words I, I wasn't allowed to say, and the second that this kid told me to shut up, I knew in my mind, my eight-year-old mind marked him as he was a bad kid, and bad kids, I had been told by every adult in my life, bad kids are bad influences, so you don't hang around with bad kids, and so for all intents and purposes, after that moment, that kid was dead to me, <laughs> which we laugh, right, it's, it's really silly. But I think about, I've, I've learned a lot in the 20 years since that moment, hopefully, as, as most people would. But I, I still catch myself slipping into that line of thinking. Like, how often, when someone wrongs me somehow, do I just write them off? And to me now, that is, what, that is their defining characteristic. I don't think about their lives. I don't think about anything else. I just think about what they did to me. Or how often, even if it's not to me, right, how often do you see people, do we see people sin... And immediately, that is just what they are. That is their story. That's who they are to us. Or even to people we don't know. Like, how often do we just meet new people? How often do people come into our lives and we judge them immediately based off of how they look or how they dress or how they carry themselves? Like, how often do I see someone and before I've ever had a conversation, do I think I know exactly what their life story is? And one of the values that I love that we have as a church is this idea of we will reach people wherever they are. And that's not not a value that just came out of nowhere. It's not a value that we decided on one day. It's a value that is taught all throughout the Bible. It's a value that Jesus himself teaches. And that's what we're going to talk about today. In Luke chapter 15, we get a story, but I'm going to set the table a little bit. We find out in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus is sitting and he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. And off on the side, there's Pharisees who are kind of, they're doing the Pharisee thing. They're judging him for whatever Jesus is doing. And I, I think one of the mistakes that we make when we read the Bible is we've heard words so often that we, we just kind of skip over them, right? Like when we read sinners and tax collectors, we're like, oh yeah, sinners and tax collectors. And then we move on. Um, but this is actually a very interesting group of people. Um, The sinners were not just normal people. A lot of times when we think of the Pharisees, we think of them as thinking that they were higher above everyone else, which they totally did. Um, But then we think of everyone down below as the Pharisees would call them sinners. And if you weren't a Pharisee, you were a sinner. Well, that's not what they believed. The Pharisees believed that there was normal Jews who were living their lives. They were following the law. And then there was another category of people called sinners. And, And who these people were is people whose lives were defined by the sin that they committed. So this would be people like like prostitutes who make their money by committing adultery or thieves who make their money by stealing. It's people whose lives are kind of structured around the idea of sin. And in the same way, a tax collector is not just your local IRS agent. And, like, I get it, right? Because, like, on on the list of things that I don't like doing, giving my money to the government is really high up there. But the the tax collectors in the ancient days, they're not just people who are making sure that everyone pays the appropriate amount of taxes. Um, A a better word for them would be traitors. They were people who were helping the Roman government oppress their families and their friends and their neighbors, See, the Romans would charge taxes, but the way that a tax collector would make their money is they would overcharge, and then they'd take the difference. They'd take the amount that was left over. That's why when we meet in the Gospels, Matthew and Zacchaeus, both of whom are tax collectors who become disciples of Jesus, they're described as being really wealthy. That's how they got their wealth. They're they're essentially government-sanctioned thieves. And that's who Jesus is eating with. And the Pharisees see this happen, and they're thinking to themselves, like, surely this man is not the Messiah. The Messiah, the Christ, would never associate with the kinds of people that Jesus is associating with. And Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, because he's God, uh, begins to tell stories. He begins to tell parables, which are, a, a parable is just a story with a point. That's how Jesus would do a lot of his teaching. He would tell a story, and at the end, the point would be an illustration of a deeper spiritual truth. And he starts off with the parable of the lost coin, and then he goes on to the parable of the lost sheep, and then finally he ends it with what is probably the most famous parable in the Gospels, and that is the parable of the prodigal son. Now, for, for a lot of us who have been in church for years, we've heard the parable of the prodigal son a thousand times, and, and what I would encourage us today as we, as we learn about it again is to go into it with a fresh perspective. Because Jesus is teaching us something here, and it would, do, it would be a, a great disservice to ourselves to simply just kind of go along with it and not truly stop and think about what's happening here. So he begins in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15, and he says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. All right, so let's stop there for a second. Let's meet our main characters. There's only three in this story. We have a father, and we have his two sons, and the youngest son has decided that he is tired of living with his family. He's tired of honoring his father. He wants to demand the inheritance that he has coming right now. And again, let's pause and let's think about what's actually happening here. Like I know, for instance, um, that my parents have a plan that one day when they're gone, they wanna be able to have something saved up that they can leave to me and my brother and my sister. They have have a, a whole plan that they're moving forward with. But how, how wicked would it be when I go home for Christmas, and I see my mom and dad, and I'm like, listen, mom, dad, I am honestly just tired of waiting for you to die, and I would like my money now. <laughs> and like, it's a little shocking, but here's the deal. That's what the son does. He's, he's not even able to act a little bit grateful for what his father has worked for. Imagine how the older brother feels as his his best friend growing up, this person that he shared almost his entire life with, now decides that he wants to leave and have nothing left to do with his family forever, as if that relationship never meant anything. Uh, Imagine how the father feels when he worked for years to make sure that his sons could have something, and his younger son just throws it away like it means nothing to him. And even worse than that, we find out later in the story that the son spent that money on, on sinful living. He spent it on things that would dishonor God and dishonor his father. And, and, and what is money except just a representation of time, right? So it's as if the son took those years that his father worked and then just spent them on sin and called it, called it a day. It's, it's an incredibly wicked thing that the son does. Jesus continues, he says, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And, and this isn't just a moment of, you know, the son runs out of money and he's thinking, I'm just going to go suck up to my dad and get more and then take off. Like, no, when he uses the language, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, I am no longer worthy. All three of those things are indicators that he understands what he has done. He understands that he hasn't just sinned against his father. He understands that he's dishonored God with what he's done. But the question, I think, for a lot of us today is how, how would we react in a similar situation? And I think, let's not even imagine that it's our child, right? Because I think a lot of us can get into the headspace of, of what we would be able, the grace that we would be able to give. But what if this is just someone that we see from a distance, someone who we knew growing up and they had left and they had done all kinds of things and they came back? How, how many of us would our first first reaction be, well, you know, they made their bed, now they can lay in it? Or how, how many of our first reactions would be, you know what? They're, they're getting what they deserve. They're getting what they earned. But, that, but that's not the story that Jesus is telling. Picking it up in verse 20, he says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat it and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. See, the the father drops everything. And he welcomes back his son. The father accepts the true repentance of his son. And, and, and we can imagine in, in this moment, and remember, Jesus, he's eating at a table with sinners and tax collectors. He knows what the Pharisees are doing. He knows the Pharisees are judging him. He knows that they're going to leave and they're gonna go tell everyone that this man is clearly not who he says he is. Look at the kind of people that he is associating with. And Jesus like, don't like, don't you get it? Like, when, when, I, when I look at these people, I don't see sinners and tax collectors. I see people who were lost, and now they're found. I see people who were dead, but now they're alive. Like, doesn't, doesn't it matter that God's redemption isn't beyond any of us? But the, the Pharisees have been so obsessed with being holy and separate that they've forgotten about grace. And it's not even grace in the New Testament, right? Like we, we understand as Christians, like this is what Jesus comes to do. But all of these Pharisees would have the Old Testament memorized and they would know chance after chance after chance that God, that, that Yahweh continuously gave to the people of Israel when they failed and failed and failed. And it's as if they've completely forgotten about that. And they're not willing to give those chances to anyone else. And I, I think when we... When we read through the parable of the prodigal son and when we teach about it, we, we oftentimes say that the failure of the Pharisees is that they're the older brother, right? And, and they, they can't be happy for the prodigals coming home. But see, I would, I would actually argue that the, the failure of the Pharisees isn't that. their failure is that they don't understand what character they are in the story. See, I, I, we have this imaginary dividing line. Between, that there's two types of Christians. And there's the prodigal Christians who maybe they were in church for a little bit and then they left and they did their own thing and then they came back. Or maybe they were never in church and they lived in sin and then the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of their hearts and then brought them in. And then there's the older brother Christians. And these are those of us who have been in church our whole lives and we've never left the Lord. We've been loyal the entire time. And, you know, if we're gonna struggle, we're gonna struggle with accepting those who are prodigal. But here's the thing. That's none of our stories. None of us are the people who have loyally stuck by the Lord all of our lives and never messed up. See, I'm, re- I'm reminded of Peter, who, of all the disciples, has the most public failing. Well, except Judas, but we won't, we, won't count, <laughs> we won't count Judas. Of the disciples who are, you know, like the good guys, Peter has the most public failing. And remember that, that Jesus plucks Peter out of complete obscurity. Peter is a fisherman in a small town of Capernaum, and Jesus takes him and makes him one of his right-hand men. He's not just one of like, that large group of disciples that follows Jesus around. He's not just one of that inner group of 12. He's a group of, when we see the Gospels, Jesus will leave, and he'll go do like, these incredibly miraculous things. It's almost always Peter, James, and John who are with him. Like Peter gets to be, for three years, the right-hand man of God in the flesh. And Jesus spends three years mentoring and pouring his life into Peter. But when when Jesus needs him the most, Peter's gone. See, when when Jesus is on trial and he's on his way to being beaten and and crucified, Peter denies ever having met Jesus three times. When, When Jesus is on the cross and experiencing pain on a level, not just physical, but emotional and spiritual, pain that we can never even imagine. When he needs his friends the most, Peter's hiding because he's he's afraid. It it would have been very easy in that moment for Jesus to just let Peter go, but what what does he do? And I, I often say that Two of the most beautiful passages of the Bible, are they're both written by John and they're both in chapters 21 of books that he wrote. And in in Revelation 21, we get this, I mean, beautiful picture of the new heaven and the new earth and, and what we as Christians look forward to with eternity with God. But in John chapter 21, we get this picture of the grace and the mercy that Jesus gives to us every day. Because remember, a lot of times when we read through the Gospels, we kind of read it as if Jesus rises from the dead, and then I mean, who knows? And then he goes up to heaven. But like, there's actually a lot of stories that happen in between those points. And after Jesus raises from the dead, he meets with some of the disciples, and then those disciples who were fishermen, they go back to the Sea of Galilee and they go back to the life that they knew. And we can imagine that in this moment, they know that they have failed. They know that it's over. But they know that they'll always have have that that season in their life when they helped God in the flesh spread the message of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. But But their time is done. And they spend all night fishing, and they can't catch anything. And in the morning, a stranger appears on the beach, and he tells them to throw the nets off the other side of the ship instead. Which, if this is sounding familiar to you, good, it should. And they throw the nets off the other side, And they try and pull it back in, but there's so many fish that it says they can't even get the nets fully back in. And that's when it starts to click with the disciples, first with John. And John shouts out, it is the Lord. And it says that Peter is so excited, he can't even wait to sail back to shore. He jumps in the water and he swims back just so he can be the first one to see Jesus. And after they have breakfast, we we get this conversation. In John chapter 21, it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon Peter. But, but nothing about this story is an accident, right? Like it's, it's not an accident that Peter probably thinks he's done, and then Jesus recreates the very first miracle that he did when he called Peter in the first place. Remember, remember, when Peter was called, he's out fishing all night, he can't catch a thing, and this guy appears on the dock, and he has no idea who Jesus is, and Jesus tells him to throw the nets off the other side. He does, and there's so many fish that he can barely pull the nets back in, and it's at that moment Peter realizes this is the Messiah, and he drops everything, and he goes and he follows him. It's, it's no accident that Jesus recreates that exact same miracle in that, in that moment. When he tells Peter how he's going to die, like, it's a little bit of a morbid thought, and he is telling him, like, this is what the end is going to be. But sometimes I think we miss that what he's also telling him is that his story's not over. When when John says he told him this to tell him by how his death was to glorify God, what he's saying is, like, no, your life is not done. Your life, you will bring glory to me still. Where, Where Peter thought that he had failed so badly that His purpose was done. His mission was gone. Jesus was making it very clear, no, you've got more work to do. And and it's not an accident that Jesus asked Peter three times for an affirmation of love. And it's as as if every single time that he asks him, Jesus just wipes away one of the denials. And then finally, when, when we get to the third one, and Jesus says... Simon, son of John, do you love me? And, and Peter replies, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. It's as if Jesus just wipes away that final denial and says, okay, we're never bringing that up again. Follow me. Feed my sheep. And, and, and for us, our, our failures might not be as, as public as Peter's, but we, we, we all have needed God's grace our whole lives. And if if there's two things for us to remember today, I I would encourage you, it's it's these. Number one, we are the prodigal son. And I I think sometimes the longer we're Christians, the more we forget that. The, The longer that we've been eating the fatted calf, the more we forget that we were eating pig slop. The longer we've been alive in Christ, the longer we've been experiencing his grace and his love and his mercy and his purpose and his joy in the midst of darkness, the the, the more we forget that we were dead in sin. And there's there's a quote that I love. It's most often attributed to Martin Luther, but it's one of those weird quotes where no one knows who said it first. Um, But it says, as Christians, we are beggars showing other beggars where we found bread. And I think that sometimes we have this image of ourselves as Christians that we're we're the rich people. And the beggars come to us and out of the kindness of our heart we we offer them bread because we're just such good people. But that's that's not who we are. The 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 only difference between us and the people who are far away from Jesus is that we know Jesus. Like we're not better. We didn't didn't earn this. It's not like God looked down one day and was like, oh, Evan, how righteous you are, saved. And then that's it, right? Like, the the whole point of Jesus coming is that we we couldn't earn our salvation. But we have this this temptation to become like the Pharisees and become so obsessed with just the the idea of, of being separate that we forget that Jesus is the difference. In our lives. It's not us. It's not that we're great people. Which which leads me to my second point. We need to always be ready to welcome the prodigal back. Like imagine if there was a, a sequel parable and the prodigal son grew up. And he had sons of his own, and then one day, one of his sons demanded his inheritance, and he left. And then he comes back, he repents to his father, and the, the prodigal son says, you know what, fine, you can go sleep with the servants, but I don't ever want to talk to you again. Like, how, how wicked would that be? For, for, for the son to not give the same grace that his father had given him, had given him all those years before. It's funny, when me and Pastor Nick were talking about this message, we were, we were talking about how, how closely it parallels his message on forgiveness from a couple of weeks ago. And, and the idea behind that message is that it is, it is sin to receive God's forgiveness and be unwilling to give that forgiveness to others. And, and in the same way, it is sin for us to run into the open arms Of Christ and be received into the church, but not be willing to extend that same welcome to other people. As as Christians, we need to always be ready to welcome people who are far away from God, whatever their story is. If, If Jesus can save Peter, if he can save Paul, just look at the list of the disciples, of the apostles, of the people who spread the news of the church, and we probably wouldn't let babysit our kids. It's, it's an absolutely incredible list of the people that God uses to further his kingdom. See The, 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 the prodigals coming home, it's our story. Like this, this is church, right? These are our stories. And for, for some of us, our story isn't a public drifting away. It's something that we know happened in our hearts, and then we ran back to the Lord, and he welcomed us back. And for some of us, it's a very public thing. We did the things that the prodigal son did. We left for a long time or we were never in church or we were never in relationship with the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of our hearts and pulled us back. And both of those stories are beautiful. And and for a lot of us in this room today, in fact, probably most of us in this room today, we're we're praying for people right now who are far away from the Lord. And we're, we're praying and we're hoping that the Holy Spirit would just grab a hold of their hearts and bring them back in. And I think that's a, it's a beautiful thing to pray for. It's an absolutely appropriate thing to pray for. And as a church, as us together, we should be praying for those who are far away from the Lord to come back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace and the mercy that you show us every day. And we pray that that would never be something we take for granted. We pray that just as we were once far from you and you welcomed us back, we pray that we would always be ready to welcome those who are far away from you back. We pray that you would soften our hearts towards the prodigals, and we pray that we would never lose sight of the incredible gift that your salvation is. In Jesus' name, amen.